Hi there, and welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. I'm your host, Katie Rubin, and in conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions, and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we're joined by Lydia Wangechi. Lydia works for Give Directly, a non-profit that allows donors to send money directly to people living in the poorest communities in low-income countries. Lydia is regional director for East Africa, and she supports the programming in Malawi and Rwanda. And she's been with the organization for about three years. And together we talk about the model of Give Directly, what it means to send cash directly to people who are in need of cash, what the positives are and some of the challenges. You will hear us talk about things like cash transfers, social protection, and also donors or international agencies such as FCDO, which stands for the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office um, in the UK. You will also hear Lydia refer to saturation, which is a term that refers to reaching everybody or as many people as possible in poorer communities with the support that they might need. Lydia, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It's really good to have you with us. And you work as regional director for Give Directly. You're supporting Malawi and Rwanda. For listeners to get an understanding of what your organization does, some will know and some might not. Can you give us an introduction to Give Directly? What does it do and how is it established? And also, where does it work? Yeah, amazing. And thank you for having me. Very excited to be chatting today. So Give Directly is a non-profit um, that allows donors to send money directly to the world's poorest households. And the reason we do this is because we believe people living in poverty deserve the dignity to choose for themselves um, how best to improve their lives. And uh, cash really enables that choice. For me personally, that is one of the reasons that I, you know, that attracted me to Give Directly, the the, the empowering vision and the agency given to recipients and to households to design for themselves the best pathways out of poverty. And, and doing that with dignity um, is something that we hold dear here at Give Directly, and, and that's that's what we do. We are in uh, 14 countries right now, some of and some of them you know include uh, Rwanda, Malawi, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and we've been considered as the fastest growing NGO globally, having taken lead in designing and delivering and managing cash-based interventions at scale, quickly, safely, and in the interest of recipients and putting recipients first. So that's that's a bit about Give Directly. We are backed by institutions, governments, and corporations. Uh, so, for example, we've been funded by FCDO, for example, USAID, TED Odisha's group in the past as well. So that just to give you a flavor of some of the uh, institutions or uh, organizations that have backed our work. And just to give you a sense of, you know, what has happened in the last decade since inception, we've raised and delivered more than 990 million to recipients globally, and we've reached more than 1.5 million people. And to give you a sense of the 14 countries that I mentioned, uh, some of them are in Africa, some some of them out of Africa. So we have Kenya, Malawi, Rwanda, Uganda, Ethiopia, Liberia, Nigeria, DRC, Morocco, and Togo. In Asia, we operate in Bangladesh and India. 
Um, we also have operations in, in the US and, and operations as well in, in Yemen. Uh, so that's hopefully gives the audience a bit of a sense of who we are as give directly and, and sort of like the, our presence across different countries. That's a very helpful introduction. Thank you. And and gives a good indication of the scale of the work you're doing as well in so many countries and reaching so many recipients. Now, you mentioned that some of uh, or one of the things that attracted you to working for Give Directly was the ethos of giving people cash directly and doing so to enhance their dignity. Would you be able to share a little bit more about your personal journey in terms of the parallels with your own lives and working for Give Directly? Yeah, happy to share that and, and thanks for, for asking. So I am Kenyan, I'm African, Kenyan to be specific, and I grew up in a rather uh, poor household. You know, we struggled to raise school fees and I was always being sent home uh, from school because my guardians could not raise uh, my school fees. And I had a couple of uh, well-wishers, I guess, Maybe people, similarly, people who are probably giving to give directly as individuals and all that, and people who just, you know, identified with my situation and, and uh, provided uh, scholarships for me. I remember an auntie who had relocated to the U.S. Um, and, and knew that I was a bright uh, student, disciplined, and, and really wanted to support me. And I remember she would send me about $50 uh, then. Uh, it's more than 20 years ago through Western Union. So in other words, she was she was doing cash directly uh, to me and that helped uh, with my upkeep uh, at the university and helped me, helped me to study and to be the person that I am. And so, uh, you know, this ethos of, of giving people directly and trusting them and trusting that they have, um, they have, they also have dreams, they have ambitions. And many times what's holding them back really is access to capital or just cash generally to be able to actualize their, their dreams. So that resonated with me. And, and I guess to say a little bit more, having been in the development uh, sector for a couple of years, I have visited communities um, where, you know, different non-governmental organizations have tried to provide very prescriptive type of support, whether it's, you know, asking a, a, a rural village in, in Machakos in Kenya to grow sorghum, for example. And then you realize that not everybody wants to be a sorghum farmer. And a year after the project has closed, you realize nobody is growing sorghum. So there is a question around sustainability. I think what's attractive about Give Directly is that it speaks to the, we do not try to prescribe anything for the recipients. We ask them uh, to be thoughtful about, you know, what they need to do to escape poverty and to change their lives. And then we are able to finance those dreams or those ambitions or the activities that they need to do. And I think that, to me, makes it sustainable, but also give the, gives the agency back to the recipients because, you know, each one of us needs to be responsible for their own, you know, well-being uh, at the end of the day, for our own growth, for our own development. Um, and I think Give Directly does that really well. Thank you, Lydia, also for sharing your own story and how it resonates with what Give Directly does and tries to achieve. Now, you mentioned some of the aspects of, of the support that's given and how it's it's given, but there's also a whole set of cash transfers that are being delivered in countries through, through governments, mm. so not directly from 
donors, uh, say in the US and elsewhere, but through governments themselves. So what would you say is different from what GiveDirectly does or what is the specific model and what makes it unique to other types of cash transfers or grants that are being provided? I think one of the things that makes us unique is one that we do unconditional cash. I think a lot of the providers, for example, will be providing conditional cash. We've also seen governments, for example, providing cash for public works. Um, you, you do some work and, and you get paid as a form of, you know, a basic income. So I think we've seen all those all, all those models, but what's unique about Give Directly is, is that it's unconditional. We trust the recipients to make the best choices for their cash, uh, for the cash that they receive. I think the other thing is that we take a lot of effort in terms of thinking through targeting. I think I've talked to, you know, people who ask me, you know, why cash, doing cash is so simple. It's just getting some, a list of people and sending them money. But our model is is unique in the sense that we think about the recipient experience and the recipient is at the center of our design. So we'll use mobile money and the reasons, for example, why we use mobile money is because it's inclusive, it's safer for recipients. Um, you know, some of the recipients we work with don't even have, uh, you know, proper housing where they can keep their money or goods that they might receive. And so with mobile money, it's much safer for the recipients and it's also scalable. Uh, it's easy to scale, you know, cash, um, especially when it's done in mobile money. The other thing that is, I think, unique about Give Directly that I probably have alluded to is in terms of how we think about targeting. We we think about how do we reach these recipients? How do we make sure that the person who is receiving this mobile money uh, at you know at the end of the of the funnel is the person we were targeting? That it's the right person. And so we've partnered with you know telco companies, for example, to do to leverage telco data to do targeting. You know we've collaborated with you know community-based organisations to make sure that we are reaching the most vulnerable. Um, we've also done uh, saturation models, uh, which is very unique to give directly. Actually, where we take in a small geolocation, for example that has very high levels of extreme poverty and will literally target every person in that community with a cash transfer, a sizable large cash transfer. Uh, so I think that those are some of the ways we, we think about targeting, but at the center of it is just really making sure that we're reaching the most vulnerable and that we are reaching them in, in the most cost-effective way, but in a way that also gives them dignity. We also think quite uh, thoughtfully about, about our enrollment processes. So during COVID, for example, we were able to do hybrid uh, models where we were able to do remote targeting. And then in a context of post or even pre-COVID, we, we've also done in-person type of, uh, of targeting and really just trying to get closer to the recipient to understand their journey, to understand what their story is and to connect with them. And so if you go to any village, for example, where we've done give, you know, work, uh, where we've worked in, you know, people will identify or give directly staff um, and they have fond memories about their interactions um, because we treat them with dignity, with respect as, as, as partners, you know, with us in this, in this journey. So I think those are some of the ways that we are different from maybe other organizations that are, are doing cash. And for the benefit of the listeners, could you give a bit more detail about the types 
of amounts we're talking about and how often you might deliver them? Sure. So I think broadly we, I would put them into two buckets. We have large lump sum transfers. And basically the reason we do large lump sum transfers is because we've done a couple of studies comparing different transfer sizes and realize that they will probably, different transfer sizes drive different outcomes. So for example, if your goal is to help um, a community that is living in extreme poverty to invest in productive assets, you know, start businesses, or people who have just recently been displaced, and the goal is, you know, their goal is, for example, to start, um, you know, to relocate or build new houses, then you probably want to do larger lump sum transfers. So we've done uh, transfers all the way up to 1,100 USD per household. We've tested, you know, even individual uh, recipient targeting of about 500, 550. So generally anything above 300 USD is something that we would see as, as you know, as, as a large lump sum transfer. And, and so we've done that for different contexts for development, but also for in a humanitarian uh, response, especially post, you know, the humanitarian events um, with the goal of supporting uh, those communities that have just, you know, gone through a traumatic humanitarian uh, event to rebuild their lives. So that's something we've done. We've also tested with smaller uh, transfers, sort of like basic income uh, transfers, especially during COVID. You know, there were huge numbers of people who suddenly didn't have jobs, didn't have a source of income, and uh, we were providing uh, transfers of about $30 to $50 per recipient per month. It feels tiny, but uh, for somebody who is living in extreme poverty, this is an enough amount to sort of meet their basic needs on a day-to-day basis and helps them, you know, go through a challenging uh, environment or, or event uh, and hopefully gives them the sustenance that they need to, to figure out what the next move is, whether it's, you know, finding a job or, or relocating or something like that. So we've tested with the large lump sum transfers and and the smaller uh, sort of like basic income transfers as well. And for the smaller transfers, the more regular ones that you might yeah. give every month, how long would people receive them for? Is it something that's a long term thing or a short, shorter term intervention? Yeah, I think uh, we've tested with various periods of time. So we've done during COVID, for example, because of the urgency and because of the huge numbers of people we were trying to support, most of the programs were between three and four four months. Um, so you'd see them more as a humanitarian response rather than, you know, cash for development or something like that. In Kenya, we've also done, we have, you know, the longest uh, basic income study, which is 12 years. It's a it's a research project where we are trying to sort of like test different basic income transfers and in different communities and, and, and sort of like compare that. But that is 12 years, but it's a research study. In other places, we've done one year type of length of the of, of projects. Um, so it really varies with the funding, but also the context in which we are operating and the mm. goal. Yeah. 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 One more question about about the practicalities of this, because I can imagine those decisions are really hard to make. Who do you target? Who do you see as vulnerable? Then is it a lump sum or, or a monthly transfer? But especially also how long do people get transfers for? 
so how does Give directly make those decisions? Mm, that's a good question. So a couple of things. When Give directly wants to operate in a country or in a, uh, a specific location, we start with a government engagement at all levels, from national government all the way to whether it's a district or village uh, level. And the engagement here, first of all, is to socialize our model because it's different. You know, a lot of leaders are have experienced sort of like traditional NGO models where it's, you know, uh, a very that are largely non, non-cash based. And so, first of all, we need to introduce them to give directly and the reasons why we do it uh, for them to get familiar with how we do that um, safely and securely but also just as a way of get, gathering feedback about the specific context of that community, uh, sensitivities that we should be aware of, and, and any concerns that they might have as, as the leadership in, in that country or in that village. So I think that's the first level of, of sort of like engagement. The second one is the community. So we will do something we call a baraza, which means it's you know calling together the community that we are planning to, to work with. And again, informing them about the project, uh, about our intervention and sort of laying out expectations and also hearing from them. And I guess uh, at this point, we also get feedback from from them. So I think that's a long way of saying it's a collaborative effort between Give Directly because we do have our model. We do have our guardrails. Um, and things that, you know, we over time we have tested and, you know, have have some practice around what a good design looks like. But uh, despite having that, we will still do government and community engagement to be able to understand the local context and understand nuances that we might not be aware of because we, we, we don't necessarily live in that community. The other perspective to bring in is that in most of our countries, our programs teams usually come from from the community we are operating in so they in most cases will have you know will speak the local language and most cases will live in that community and i think that has been helpful for us as we think about like designing our our interventions and uh being sensitive to the context that, that we are operating in i hope that's helpful absolutely thank you very interesting and also you mentioned collaboration with governments and I wanted to pick up on that because you work especially in Malawi and and in Rwanda and certainly in Malawi there is the social cash transfer program that the government runs supported by various partners Mm -hmm. so in that collaboration with governments is the give directly support set up as something parallel or something that might be integrated in government programming in future how does that conversation happen? So in Malawi, for example, we have been in conversations with the government about strengthening their social protection programs in a number of ways. One is uh, in a couple of uh, places we've actually shared our playbooks, our, our lessons around how we target, our lessons about how we partner with telcos to do mobile money, our lessons or playbooks around safeguarding. And, and your referral pathways and all that. Uh, so we, we we have partnered, for example, with the government of, of of DRC and in many places as well in terms of just sharing knowledge. 
And in this case as well in Malawi, for example, those are conversations we've been we've been a part of. So we we have had government reaching out to us, governments reaching out to us and saying, hey, you guys are the experts in doing cash. We'd like to learn from you in terms of how you do this in a in a in a scalable way. But also what they also find attractive about Give Directly is the is our efficiency. So we've been sharing uh, good practices in terms of how to do that. I think from sort of a give directly perspective, we always think that the role of social protection should be government's responsibility. In the interim, we are happy to collaborate with them, partner with them, um, you know, share good practices and sometimes even help them build um, the technology that is required for them to be able to take this up and do it in an efficient and, and cost effective way, even after give directly exits, um, whether from the country or exits the social protection space. So it's largely collaborative, but our end goal is to build the capacity of of the government um, of that specific country to be able to do social protection and do it really well. That's great. Thank you. The next question I wanted to ask you is about some of the skepticism and the concerns around giving people cash. And there there are many of them. There are many worries about how people use the cash, whether they might uh, buy alcohol or other things that we think aren't appropriate for the cash to be used for, whether it leads to dependency, laziness, yeah. etc. So I imagine Give Directly gets confronted with those fears and concerns a lot of the time. And how do you respond to those? Yeah, it's an interesting one that we have to deal with every day. One of the ways that I respond is by sharing evidence. There are over 300 research studies that show the effectiveness of giving cash. And it's actually, cash is actually one of the most researched anti-poverty intervention. Um, I guess coming from this skepticism of, you know, giving people cash and, and, and all the concerns that people might have around that. We at Give Directly have run about 20 of our own studies that have proved the power of cash. And we also track how people use the cash. And what we have seen is that people use cash to buy things like medicine, to buy livestock, whether it's cows or goats, to pay school fees, to connect to water, uh, their their homes to water, to solar, uh, buying solar uh, lights for their homes, building their their houses. We've seen people using cash to to do irrigation. We've seen people buying motorcycles to start a taxi business. Um, We've seen people setting up small businesses just to be able to generate income. So we track how people use cash and we have not seen any evidence um, that that cash leads to dependency or laziness. If anything, we've actually seen that cash leads to more uh, productive hours, probably because people are now connected to electricity and can work longer or just because they now have additional cash and can you know, run businesses. So they're more productive, I think, by sharing evidence. And then something else that I have also seen, especially in our African context, is that a majority of us actually send cash home to our own parents or siblings back at home, especially for those who've moved to maybe the cities and have a better job and the parents are not doing too well. We send send them cash, right? But for some reason, we tend to question cash when it is used as an anti-poverty intervention. But I think it's probably because it's it's still new and we are still used to the traditional ways of doing development that are around 
you know, individuals uh, who who are many miles, th- thousands, you know, thousands of miles away, choosing what people should invest in or, or even deciding what they need most. And I think that's a, there's a mind shift needed. Um, and I think it's happening, but it takes, you know, it, it takes time. There's a funny quote that I, I love referring to um, by that's been shared by our research director who comes from a medical background. And she says, when they tested ARVs and found that ARVs, you know, work and that they are effective, there were no questions. There was no debate about should we do ARVs. We literally went out and, you know, uh, produced ARVs and distributed them uh, to the people that needed them. But 300 research studies down the line, we are still questioning whether cash is effective. And so there's there's something there that is for, for us to think uh, about and, and 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 question why why this skepticism around around cash and where does it come from? A really nice comparison there. And just uh, for the benefit of listeners who aren't aware, ARVs stand for antiretroviral medication. Yeah. Very interesting. Hopefully those who are skeptical are more and more convinced by the evidence that is in part produced mm-hmm. through GIFT directly. I also wanted to ask you about something that you spoke about a little bit earlier, which is the targeting and the identification of people that might be most vulnerable or in greatest need. And was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the process of deciding this and whether you've come across or in the communities that you work, you've come across tensions and how they are resolved by Give Directly or in collaboration with community leaders. By the time we're designing a, a project, sort of safeguarding and the wellness of the recipients and the community is something that we put at the front of our, of our design, as I, as I mentioned. So we have, for example, internally a safeguarding team and, and their priority is really to make sure that we do no harm in the communities where we operate. So one of the ways we will do that is, for example, if it's a we're going into a community where literally everybody is poor, instead of trying to target, we will saturate a village or even a sub-location just to make sure that we don't leave some people feeling left out, create tensions within the community where those who got the cash are targeted uh, by those by those who didn't. And it, it contexts also where we've done this is with our refugees in a camp setup. We'll target the refugees, but we'll also do a percentage of the of the hosting community just to make sure that there's goodwill and and that the community continues to be cohesive and we're not causing any any tensions there. But also thinking about sort of like the do no harm principle, because if you have a in a community, some people who are suddenly have, you know, some some increased purchasing power and some people who don't, then, you know, you you create some uh, differences there that may lead those who didn't get the cash to be uh, negatively affected. So we've tried to study that. And in context where we feel that like that's a, a risk, then we'd rather target everybody. And, and, and the refugees and host communities is one example, but also in extremely poor villages uh, where you're likely to just be leaving out five people or 10 people, we might as well do a saturation model and make sure that everybody has been covered. And it's also efficient sometimes to just cover everybody than trying to pick out the five people who are slightly better off than, than everybody else. In terms of time and our staff time and related costs, it just makes sense sometimes to do a saturation. 
beyond that, uh, the community engagement is also a good place for us to understand sort of like those dynamics and, and understand potential conflicts or tensions that, that might be present or that might arise because of our programming. And there are places where we'll hold off running a program if we think that it will, it will cause any, any conflict or tensions in that community. In some cases, maybe raise more money to make sure that we cover everybody. Or in some cases, just communicating better with the government leaders or the community leaders about, unfortunately, the budget we have is only enough for X region. We understand that we'll not be covering everybody. What do you recommend? Uh, and we have those sessions where we, you know, we, we bring our minds together and think about what what's the best approach. And, and I think because we do that proactive communication, even before getting into the community, that we are able to understand and make decisions before before we enter that community. If, the, if there are any tensions that arise, then we are able to work uh, with the local leaders to resolve any tensions that may, may arise by communicating better. Thanks for explaining that process <laughs> and, and how carefully you go about doing that in the different locations you work. There's also a new area of work, which is something called anticipatory cash transfers. Can you explain to us what these are and how they're different from the other types of transfers, lump sum or monthly ones that you've already mentioned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anticipatory cash transfers is a, is a new area of work. What we do is we use predictive technology to anticipate where climate disasters can occur. And then we send cash transfers to people so that they can use the money to protect themselves and their property before the disaster strikes. So traditionally, the way we've done uh, humanitarian responses or how we've responded to these disasters in the past has been post the event. But this is a new area where we're trying to see how do we minimize the impact or the shock on, on those communities by giving them uh, cash transfers ahead of the event, ahead of the disaster, so that they can protect themselves better and hopefully re- hopefully reduce the number of casualties, hopefully reduce the number of losses. And, and that's an exciting area that, that we've been testing. So examples uh, will be, for example, before a cyclone. We tested this in Mozambique um, and before the cyclone hit, which I think was last March, uh, we were able to target people and and send them cash ahead ahead of the cyclone. We've also done this in um, Central America last October, just before the torrential rains. And I think we've also done this in Uganda. There's a place called Mount Elgon that is quite prone to landslides at at a certain time time of the year. And so sending cash ahead of that time in collaboration with government to sensitize people about the potential dangers in collaboration as well with the meteorology departments in those countries as well, just to make sure that they are sensitizing the communities about, hey, there's a landslide coming your way and give directly is providing you with support to make sure that you can protect yourself and your and your property before this happens. So that's an exciting area of work. And we are hoping that we can continue to test this at various skills uh, in the different countries where we operate. But the goal really is to protect and reduce the damage from some of these uh, disastrous events. Very important initiative, especially in these times when climate disasters are unfortunately Mm -hmm. more frequent and often uh, more damaging than ever. 
a quick follow-up question on this. So if you want to put this in place, does it mean that you already have lists of people in advance that you think live in areas that are at risk and have that system set up? How are you going to send out those messages saying there might be a hurricane coming to those who might be affected if that mm-hmm. infrastructure isn't in place yet? Yeah, good question. So first of all, this only works for disasters that we can predict right so if if it's a terror attack and we can't predict unfortunately this doesn't work or uh, an earthquake or something like that that we we probably are not able to predict uh, then then this technology doesn't work but in some of these co- uh, communities especially on uh, climate disasters they usually are predictable they happen you know at certain times of the year usually and it's quite predictable in terms of like the communities that they have been perennially affected by this. And so it's a collaboration between uh, different stakeholders, give directly that understands how to do cash. Usually the government and the meteorology departments that will have will be running the alarms that will be telling people, hey, you know, a cyclone is coming your way. And so we do the work ahead of the event. So we make the investment ahead of the of the anticipated uh, shock or, or disaster. So that means the working with the government to sensitize the community, including enrolling the people ahead of time. So it's it's a bit of like you have to invest even before the, the disaster strikes and you have to create triggers for when to release the, the cash transfers. So we've seen in places where we have enrolled people, but for example, a cyclone takes a different path than was initially predicted. So it's still a very new area where we're still learning, but we feel like this is a place where we need to invest more time in, uh, more technology, because it, it could, uh, it could, you know, protect people from huge losses, um, including losses of life anyway. Absolutely. Lydia, I think we've come towards the end of our conversation. But before I end, I would like to ask you, as I do all my guests, whether you'd like to add anything, anything that we haven't discussed, I haven't asked you about and that you want the listeners to know about. Yeah, I guess a couple of things. One is the benefits of providing cash transfers and especially doing this sort of like universally. I wanted to share a couple of thoughts. One is that universal transfers benefit the included area as well as the surrounding villages. So we did this study that showed that every dollar given to a community results in $2.5 for the surrounding area. So even when we're not able to saturate, we've we've seen that the economic benefits also, you know, benefit the surrounding villages. So that, that's that's a good reason for why we do cash. And uh, we've had conversations with government, especially when they're doing like drought response and they will have these trucks of, you know, trucks carrying food, whether it's maize or beans, places like Kenya, for example. And I've told them, you know, if you just give cash, the market is able to respond and you'll, you know, people will be able to buy for themselves whatever food they prefer. And so you you not only give people food, but you're also creating, catalyzing some economic activities or benefits in, in that community. So that's a good reason for why we advocate for cash, both for development, but also even in humanitarian cases, unless people cannot access food and they're very unique 
instances where that's the case, then we'll always advocate for just send the people cash because it benefits the economy as well. And then I wanted to mention a couple of things that we've seen people also investing in, especially the lump sum transfers. I think a lot of people understand why you'd do the basic income, the small transfers, but the lump sum transfers are less common. And and wanted to share that lump sum transfers allow people to invest in what they need most. But they have also been shown to improve recipients' earnings. We've seen children's school attendance going up. We've seen health, nutrition, and mental well-being. Uh, and wanted to emphasize even the mental well-being because sometimes that's not usually uh, an expected outcome, but it is something that we have seen in most of the communities we we work in. And so regular transfers over medium or long term definitely allows uh, communities to be able to thrive. And even when, you know, unplanned events come up like COVID, we've seen these communities being more resilient than, than other communities. So just sharing a bit more benefit of, of doing cash and sort of advocating for large lump sum transfers where, where necessary. And thank you for having me today. Thank you, Lydia. That's been very fascinating. And it's been great learning about Give Directly and its work. And I just want to thank you for taking your time to be with us today to share your insights and experiences. This is a great learning opportunity about your work, about cash transfers, and I hope also one more effort in convincing those who might be a bit skeptical of cash of its benefits. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode about cash transfers and the work that Give Directly does, you might also be interested in some of our other episodes. For example, episode 30 is about basic income, another form of cash transfers. As always, we'd love for you to leave us a review and to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you'll join us again next time.